More than 137 million Americans are living in places with unhealthy levels of air pollution. The number of weather-related disasters has increased five-fold in the past 50 years. Tonight, amid record-breaking heat and explosive wildfire bringing devastation to Northern California. The Red Sea corals are under threat from toxic wastewater being dumped into the sea from an oil processing plant. Since the release of dangerous ancient microbes buried deep under the permanent frozen zone. Composition of the liquid has changed. It doesn't have any properties of water left. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Bostock. Welcome to the very first episode of Chronic Failure. I just thought before we got started, I would go ahead and introduce myself. Um, like I said, my name is Brian. I decided to put this sort of podcast together because I think we're living in a time where we're seeing more and more uh, pollution events uh, and environmental disasters and as we move further and further into the climate change debate um, regardless of what side you are on um, when it comes to climate change I mean it's very undeniable that that we are at least polluting the environment um, so I just thought I could bring to light some of those disasters and then maybe we can take a look at what we have done and it might help us change our ways and um, bring a better future through change. I think, I think in order to change things for the future or to have a better future, we do have to at least have an understanding of the past. Um, unlike a lot of people tend to do in all different sectors, they like to hyper-focus on the past and they like to basically live in the past. That's not what I'm wanting to do. Like I said, you need to acknowledge the past, but ultimately where we need to aim our focus is the future. Now, I started off in Colorado. That's where I grew up. Uh, until I graduated high school, I spent most of my time outdoors, rock climbing, mountaineering, hiking, things like that. I lived right off the Rocky Mountains, so that made that very easy for me, um, having that access. I went into the Marine Reserves right out of high school. Once I was done in the military, I decided to go to college and pursue a bachelor's in science in environmental restoration. And I received that from the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Go Huskers! Hopefully at some point I'll have some fellow Huskers listening to this. Uh, once I graduated, I ended up in the environmental field, not exactly what I went to school for. My focus in school was on lakes and streams, so I also minored in water science. I ended up actually going sort of a different route. I am still in an environmental field, but I currently work in air pollution. So essentially what my job entails is monitoring for things such as SO2, NONOY, CO, ozone, we monitor for particulate matter, 
primarily 2.5, but we do have a site or two monitoring PM10. In the next few years, once the area I'm located in hits about a million people, we'll start monitoring for those ozone precursors. So we're looking at formaldehydes and other such precursors like that, uh, oxides and things. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to bring a whole other aspect, a little more scientific in the way that those are monitored that I'm pretty excited about. So now that you have a little bit of introduction with me, uh, I hope to hear from all of you fellow listeners, whether it's as soon as this is uploaded or, you know, a year from now, two years from now, I would love to hear from you. If you want to let me know, are you in the environmental sector? Are you in the private environmental sector? Are you in government? You know, I'm interested. Even if you're not and you're interested in what I'm talking about, I would greatly appreciate knowing that. I would greatly appreciate positive reviews. And as always, I hope you enjoy this episode. Dichlorodiphenyl trichlorothane, also known as DDT, is an organochlorine insecticide that was first synthesized in the year 1874 by a German student named Othmer Zeidler. Pure DDT is colorless and it's a crystalline solid that melts at 109 degrees Celsius, which is about 228 degrees Fahrenheit for us in the US. It's created through a reaction of chloral with chlorobenzene in the presence of sulfuric acid. DDT's insecticidal properties were discovered in 1939 by a Swiss chemist, Paul Hermann Mueller, working for the GG Corporation of Germany. The GG Corporation was a dye manufacturing firm. Dr. Mueller previously created two brand new insecticides called Jesserol and Neocide, but the active ingredient eluded him for some time. It was later found to be DDT after taking the pure substance home and trying it on houseflies. Now, the substance was refined several times and discovered to be extremely potent, even in minute amounts. Initially, it was thought of being completely non-toxic to humans. Now, a patent was obtained by Windroth on behalf of Dr. Mueller and the GG Corporation in the 1940s. In 1948, Dr. Mueller actually won the Nobel Prize in Physiology of Medicine in connection to the discovery of the insecticidal qualities and the use of DDT. Initially, it was used by the U.S. military in World War II to control malaria, typhus, body lice, and the bubonic plague. American and British entomologists were skeptical at first. Prior to DDT, military personnel and supplies was done with pyrethrum, which was extracted from a flower and imported from Japan. Now, obviously, supply of pyrethrum was cut off once the U.S. joined World War II, and this led scientists fearing more lives lost to insect-transmitted diseases than actual fighting deaths between countries. 
Once the War Production Board in the U.S. encouraged its production, DDT production reached a high of 3 million pounds. The Army added DDT to its supply lists May of 1932 and the Navy lists January 1944. And this left a few hundred thousand pounds left for further testing and backup supplies. Now, military testing was conducted in Mexico, Algeria, and Egypt to stop small typhus endemics. The ultimate test for DDT was in Naples, Italy in late 1943. Allied medical authorities feared a looming typhus epidemic due to the high concentrations of refugees in a relatively small area. Now, death rates went beyond 60 deaths a day, and without the use of DDT, deaths may have been in the upwards of a quarter million people. Now, in 1943, the U.S. troops dusted the entire Neapolitan population with DDT, and that's roughly 73,000 people directly dusted, but a total of 1.3 million people lived in the area that was treated. After this dusting, new cases rapidly declined within a month, and within two months, there were zero new cases of typhus. After this, it was pretty much solidified that DDT was the way to go in terms of pest control. So soldiers and sailors started carrying cans of DDT to use against insects, using it in tents, barracks, mess halls, and even in their clothing. Now, while DDT was used across all military conflict areas, such as in Europe and Asia, it was primarily used and was the most effective in tropical climates such as Southeast Asia, South Sea Islands, and East Asia due to the harsh and deep tropical vegetations and the large number of insects. By war's end, DDT was the most widely acclaimed insecticide throughout the world, and it would soon be headed to the doorsteps of the public. Of course, if you're making money with DDT production, because of the war, now the war is over, those producing DDT are not going to want that decline. So naturally, the next step would be to push it to the public. Now at this time, public perceptions were somewhat positive, mostly positive in fact, due to military propaganda pushing a war on the home front against insects. There are some posters that I found, and these will be posted on the podcast's Instagram page, but one poster said, Fight the peril behind the lines. And another one says, The malaria mosquito knocks out more men than the enemy. And the picture shows two soldiers carrying another on a stretcher. And a third one says, Is your organization prepared to fight both enemies? And it's, this one was an insensitive ad altogether. It's an American soldier holding what looks to be a Japanese soldier by his clothing in one hand and a mosquito in the other. 
aside from that, you you can see, you know, they're comparing, you know, fighting these insects with DDT to fighting the enemy, which at this time, according to this, was Japanese soldiers, which we all know was the case. And then a fourth one, this one kind of pushed a little further back at kind of, you know, parents. It says, kill the fly and save the child. And it just depicts a giant fly holding a small child against the ground, trying to, you know, who knows what. I would assume kill it. I think it's kind of left to the person's imagination, whoever's looking at it. So while the public was being kind of pushed into using this, but also realizing, hey, it does stick around residually, and it does continue to kill insects, you know, those perceptions did stay pretty good, but around the same time, some scientists were unsure of DDT, and you'd kind of, it was kind of the beginning of looking into the harmful effects of DDT use. Now, agricultural and commercial use of DDT became widespread in the U.S. due to its reasonable cost, effectiveness, persistence, and its versatility. Now, right around 1.3 billion pounds of DDT were used in the approximately 30 years of domestic use. That is a lot. And by many estimates, DDT has been thought to have saved at least 500 million lives in that same time. In this case, the indoor residual spraying of DDT decreased the case of malaria, cases of malaria, from 100 million a year in 1953 to about 150,000 by 1966. Now, deaths due to malaria, which were nearly a million in the 1940s, decreased to about 1,500 a year in 1966. And that's according to the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Now, like I said, scientists were starting to do some separate tests. We're starting to see some issues in the environment with whole insect populations going away, causing animal populations to dwindle, you know, that, and that's birds, insects, mammals even, fish especially. Now usage dropped dramatically starting around the 1960s, and we'll get into this a little bit later on the reasons why, but the peak application was about 80 million pounds in 1960 to about 12 million pounds in just 10 years after that. So that is a very sharp drop-off. Of that 12 million pounds yearly in the early 70s, roughly 80% was applied on cotton, with the remaining DDT being applied to mostly peanuts and soybeans. So at this time, it's mainly for crops. This decline was due to several factors. One was increased insect resistance. It turned out that insects in a very quick time frame would gain resistance to DDT. So 
you know, it was very quick and very potent to kill, but over time, that did not last. Now, number two, the development of more effective alternative pesticides. We were seeing that this was so effective, it was causing issues, it was sticking around so long that it was getting into the environment that newer pesticides were being produced to try to mitigate the effects that DDT were showing in the environment. And then that goes into the third factor of decline, and that was growing public concern over these adverse environmental side effects. So two and three pretty much go together. Um, it's this growing public concern, and that's kind of pushing alternative pesticides. And then along with that, due to the testing, due to the public outcry, the fourth reason for decline was the increasing government restrictions on DDT. Right around the same time, DDT was purchased by the Agency for International Development and the United Nations for Malaria Control. As we know, it is very good at controlling mosquitoes. Now, exports increased from 12% in the 1950s to 67% in 1969. But ultimately, it would drop from 70 million pounds yearly to 35 million pounds after that, between 1970 and 1972. And that's when we started seeing the beginning of the DDT bans. So like I was saying, it was really good at what it was doing, you know, killing pests, but because of those characteristics that once popularized DDT, such as that persistence, eventually became the basis for the public concern and the bans. While concerns were nothing new, you know, like I said, even in the beginning, some scientists had their doubts and their concerns. It was actually Rachel Carlson's book, Silent Spring, in 1962, that propelled that public concern, uh, and it focused on three main points. One was the main problem with pesticides is that they don't target pests exclusively. Like I was saying earlier, and will allude to later on in this podcast episode, it did not just target the insects. It had effects on birds. It had effects on mammals. It had effects on fish. You know, it's, it stuck around for a long time. So even when the bugs were gone, or the insects were gone, it was still having those same effects on whatever other creatures were moving in on that area. Now number two is that DDT can harm people even without direct exposure. Now this is still a little controversial. There are studies that have been done, there is ongoing studying, and, you know, it's really, it's been a challenge to link DDT directly to human health issues, but it's kind of being shown that, that down in generations is where you see the effects of DDT, and that's another thing that we'll talk about later in this episode. Now, number three of the main concerns um, that 
Silent Spring pointed out is that to prevent the harmful effects of pesticides, we need more education and other environmental friendly ways to preserve crops. Now, like I said, most DDT was being used on crops at this point, and that's why, you know, being outside, you have runoff and you have those birds eating the insects, eating the plants that are treated with DDT. Um, that's where most of the harmful environmental issues were coming from, not necessarily, you know, spraying DDT in your home around your baseboards, although that probably was negatively affecting your pets, your children, and even the parents. So after this book came out, it kind of became that it wasn't just DDT that was put under the microscope. It was all of a sudden all pesticides were kind of being put under a microscope. Now confrontations grew as both proponents and opponents both voiced their opinions. So proponents argue that DDT has a good record when it comes to human health, as well as that alternatives to DDT can be much more hazardous and more expensive. Now, I don't know necessarily about hazardous because DDT was shown to be very hazardous, especially compared to pyrethrin, that chemical that was being used before for the Japanese attacked us in World War II. Now that has its own set of health concerns, but it is not as potent in some aspects as the DDT is. I think this was probably more about money, expensive, because the bottom line is how can we save money? And that is pretty much with anything, especially nowadays. While opponents agree there weren't any direct links to harm in humans, they argue that the chemical is persistent and collects in food chains, resulting in non-targeted effects on nature, which at this time, studies were showing that that was the case. And because of these differences, there were four government committees that were created to consider all sides of the situation, which resulted in the release of four separate reports. Now, the first one was released in 1963, named The Use of Pesticides, and it was a report of the President's Science Advisory Committee, or the PSAC. The second was released in November 1965, called Restoring the Quality of Our Environment, and this report was from the Environmental Protection Panel, or PSAC. The third report was released in May of 1969, and it was the Report of the Committee on Persistent Pesticides. And this was from the Division of Biology and Agriculture National Research Council to the Agricultural Department. And then the last one was released in December of 1969, and this was the MRAC Commission Report. And all of these committees concluded that DDT should in fact be phased out. So after these reports were released, you know, obviously nothing in the government moves quick. Further legal pressures from the environmental groups, such as Environmental Defense Fund, the 
National Audubon Society, the National Wildlife Federation, and the Isaac Walton League ultimately led to restrictions of DDT use as, at both the local and federal levels. These environmental groups were essentially lobbying for the ban. They were pushing the government. They, you know, they had the money. They had the resources. They had a lot of scientists working at least in conjunction with them to get that information to the government. And finally, the government um, listened to what they were saying or at least considered what they were saying. And ultimately, restrictions were put on DDT. Now, the first restrictions placed on DDT were at the state level. And that was a total outlaw except for emergency use in the states of Illinois, Iowa, Massachusetts, New Mexico, New York, Rhode Island, Vermont, and Wisconsin. And the remaining states placed some sort of limitations on the chemical use, but not outright ban. And after that, eventually came down the federal bans. And so federal regulatory actions weren't completely lacking up to this point. So there were seven initial major policies in regards to the reduction in the use of DDT before it was outright banned federally. In 1957, the Forest Service, U.S. Department of Agriculture, prohibited the spraying of DDT in certain protective strips surrounding aquatic lands with in its jurisdictions. Now, the next year, after having applied nine and a half million pounds of the chemical, USDA began to phase out its use of DDT. They reduced spraying of DDT from 4.9 million acres in 1957 to just over 100,000 acres in 1967. Now, that is a huge drop in acres, but you still have to understand that 100,000 acres is about the size of 75,757 football fields, American football fields. So it's still a very large area of land. The major uses of DDT by the Forest Service have been against the gypsy moth and the spruce and the spruce budworm. In 1964, the Secretary of the Interior issued a directive stating that the use of chlorinated hydrocarbons on interior lands should be avoided unless no other substitutes were available. Now they took this a little bit further. They didn't say DDT, they said chlorinated hydrocarbons. So anything that was in the same class as DDT was banned. In June of 1970, the secretary issued an order banning use of 16 types of pesticides, including DDT, on any lands in any program managed by departments, bureaus, and agencies. So then, between 1967 and April 1969, the USDA further canceled DDT registrations for use against houseflies and roaches 
on foliage of more than seven crops in milkrooms and on cabbage and lettuce. So now we're banning the use on the crops, which was the major use of DDT at this time. And we're getting it out of the food supply, you know, those crops, but also milk rooms, cabbage, and lettuce. Now, in August 1969, DDT usage was sharply reduced in certain areas of USDA's cooperative pest control programs in relation to the environmental contamination. So, obviously, you know, 1967, 1969, they canceled DDT registrations. That is going to cause that sharp reduction in the use. Now, in November 1969, the USDA initiated action to cancel all DDT registrations for use against pests of shade trees, aquatic trees, homes, gardens, and tobacco. And they also announced their initiation to discontinue all uses that were non-essential to human health and for which there were safe and effective substitutes. So it just further goes. It started with just some areas and some forest lands. Then it went on and it kind of slowed the use of DDT. And then it went on and canceled use on some crops and in some dairy and food production. And then, you know, now by the end of 1969, it is going further. Now it's all the trees, all the aquatic areas, homes. I mean, this is how this goes. It usually starts with a little bit. And then it just keeps going until ultimately it's banned. Now, in 1970, August to be exact, another major action by the USDA canceled federal registrations of DDT products used as follows. One on 50 food crops, beef cattle, goats, sheep, swine, seasoned lumber, finished wood products, and buildings two around commercial institutional and industrial establishments including all non-food areas in food processing plants and restaurants and third on flowers and ornamental turf areas so they hit pretty hard between 1964 and 1970 that's not a very long time, six years, and they've pretty much banned the registration and use of DDT on a lot of things. Probably the majority. At this point, the major users of DDT have had their use of DDT taken away from them, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that that's unfair, but that's the way it is. So at the end of 1970, responsibility for federal regulation was transferred to the newly formed Environmental Protection Agency. And we all know what that is. It's the EPA. President Richard Nixon stated, the federal agency was created to deal with research, standard setting, monitoring, and enforcement with regard to five environmental hazards, air, water pollution, solid waste disposal, radiation, and pesticides. And it would also be responsible for detecting and mitigating environmental problems both locally and nationally 
with the intent for turning the 1970s into a decade of environmental recovery. So, in January 1971, under a court order following a suit by the Environmental Defense Fund, the EPA issued notices of intent to cancel all remaining federal registration of products containing DDT. The principal crops affected by this action were cotton, citrus, and some certain vegetables. In March 1971, the EPA issued cancellation notices for all registrations of products containing TDE, which is a DDT metabolite, and the EPA administrator further announced that no suspension of the registration of DDT products was warranted because evidence of imminent hazard to the public welfare was lacking. So this kind of went backwards. You know, you're, you're looking for total suspension. They've come this far. They've pretty much banned registration and use of DDT for virtually everything. But even at this point in 1971, they're just not quite ready to completely ban it. And their statement is just because it doesn't show an imminent hazard to public welfare. You know, being the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, yes, they should be concerned about human hazards, but I think their job also entails environmental hazards. And at this point, there was plenty of research showing that the environment was being harmed by DDT. So this was kind of interesting. When I read that, I was very surprised. Now, the EPA administrator further announced that no suspension of the registration of DDT products was warranted because evidence of imminent hazard of the public welfare was lacking. And I find this interesting. Suspension, in contrast to cancellation, is the more severe action taken against pesticide products under the law. Because of the decision not to suspend, companies were able to continue marketing their products in interstate commerce pending the final resolution of the administrative cancellation process. Now, after reconsideration of the March order, which I just spoke of, in light of scientific advisory committee reports, the administrator later reaffirmed his refusal to suspend the DDT registrations. The report was requested by Montrose Chemical Corporation's sole remaining manufacturer of basic DDT chemicals. So, there you have it. They have a report coming out saying that DDT is probably showing the opposite of what everyone else is saying. Obviously, they're going to be a bad faith actor because they are the sole remaining manufacturer of DDT. They do not want to lose their business. But for some reason, the EPA does not want to do what they were created to do at this point. Now, in August 1973, upon the request of 31 DDT formulators, a hearing began on the cancellation of all remaining federal registered uses of products containing DDT. So now the ball is rolling. When the hearing ended in March of 1972, the transcripts of 9,312 pages 
contained testimony from 125 expert witnesses and over 300 documents. The principal parties to the hearings were various formulators of DDT, the USDA, which, you know, at this point has already banned the use in many sectors, the EDF, and the EPA. So then further, so then later, on June 14, 1972, the EPA administrator announced the final cancellation of all remaining crop uses of DDT in the U.S. effective December 31, 1972. So finally, a breakthrough DDT ban for crop uses. That's going to take a large portion of that DDT going into the environment. Unfortunately, because of the persistence of DDT, you know, the damage was already done, but at least at this point, further damage couldn't continue to grow. Now, this order did not affect public health and quarantine uses or experts of DDT. So the administrator based his decision on findings of persistence, transport, biomagnification, toxicological effects, and on the absence of benefits of DDT in relation to the availability of effective and less environmentally harmful substitutes. Which makes sense. Obviously, you want to go with the less environmentally harmful substitutes. The good thing with this is the EPA made this choice not based on cost. As you heard, I didn't say cost. It said in relation to availability of effective and less environmental harmful substances. That is directly from the EPA notice when this was put into place. So at this point, they're saying we don't care if it costs more. The environment is more important. Now, the prohibition was delayed for about six months, and this was in order to permit an orderly transition to the substitute pesticides. And in conjunction with this transition, the EPA and USDA jointly developed Project Safeguard, which was a program of education in the use of highly toxic organophosphate substitutes for DDT. Now, just remember, so now they're going to organophosphates, but before they're using organochlorines. Now, organophosphates do have their own risks associated with them, but compared to DDT, they are the less harmful. So later in October 1972, the Federal Environmental Pesticides Control Act, a far-reaching amendment to the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act, was enacted. These amendments provided the EPA with more effective pesticide regulation mechanisms than were previously available under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act. In April of 1973, the EPA, in accordance with authority granted by the amended law, required that all products containing DDT be registered with the agency by June 10, 1973. So, now the major uses of DDT have been banned. But there are some uses that are still available, but you can kind of see that at this point, the agency is reeling that in. Now they want everyone to register their DDT. They want to know where it's being used, who it's being used by, how much you're using it. 
And so immediately following the DDT prohibition by the EPA, the pesticides industry and the EDF filed appeals contesting the June order with several U.S. courts. So the pesticide industry filed suit to nullify the EPA ruling, while the EDF sought to extend the prohibition to those few uses not covered by the order. And so ultimately, the appeals court were consolidated in the U.S. Court of Appeals by the District of Columbia, and so on December 13, 1973, the court ruled there was substantial evidence in the record to support the EPA administrator's ban on DDT. So DDT finally is banned. Or so you think. DDT actually had some exceptions. So ultimately, it was banned. But like we saw initially when it was banned in the States, there were some extreme cases where you could use DDT in time of emergency. So once it was banned federally, there were exceptions, such as April 27, 1973, the EPA granted a request of temporary use by the states of Washington and Idaho against the pea leaf weevil. And again, February 26, 1974, the EPA granted a request for use by the Forest Service to combat the Douglas fir tussock moth in the Northwest. Now, there have been other attempts to use DDT in time of emergency, but those attempts ultimately did not warrant the use of DDT in the eyes of the EPA, and so they were struck down. So now that we kind of had the idea of the beginning and the end of DDT use, let's hop into the environmental and human health effects of DDT. When DDT breaks down, it breaks down into DDD, DDE, and DDA. DDT affects the nervous system by interfering with normal nerve impulses. And this is how it affects pretty much everything it comes in contact with. In terms of toxicity, a common measure of toxicity is the lethal dose, or the LD50, or lethal concentration, the LC50, which causes death resulting from a single or limited exposure in 50% of the treated animals. So the toxicity levels that are generally used are going to be high toxicity, which is pretty self-explanatory. That's the most toxic, moderately toxic, slightly toxic, and then no toxicity. And so just to kind of put it into perspective, the oral LD50 for highly toxic in anything is up to and including 50 milligrams per kilogram of weight. And then the no toxicity is greater than 5,000 milligrams per kilogram. And so aside from the toxicity level ratings, there are several ways in which they measure how the substance can be introduced into your body. There's orally, so through the mouth, inhalation, breathing it in, dermal, which is through your skin, eye effects, which would be obviously in your eyes, and skin effects. So dermal 
would be the difference between dermal and skin is dermal is absorbed through the skin into the bloodstream and skin effects would be topically so rashes burns things like that now in terms of ddt obviously there isn't a lot of there there's not a lot of information for humans like i said we'll discuss it further down the line uh, some of the health effects that are more generational from ddt but just to put things into perspective for animals now the ld50 for rats of ddt is 113 to 800 milligrams that means 50% of rats in a group of in a, in a group will die if given 113 to 800 milligrams of DDT in a single sitting. And in dogs, it's 500 to 750. So this might sound a lot, but if you look at everyday substances that humans use, such as caffeine, 140 milligrams is the LD50 for rats, and 140 is also the LD50 for dogs for caffeine. So caffeine is not far off in terms of LD50 for rats. Uh, it is quite a bit lower for dogs. Um, there are other substances such as aspirin, Tylenol, codeine. They all have uh, lower LD50 rates. So DDT is slightly to moderately toxic to birds when eaten. And DDT decreases the reproductive rate of birds by causing eggshell thinning and embryo deaths. For aquatic animals, DDT is highly toxic as well. And it affects various systems in the aquatic animals, including the heart and brain. And because DDT is odorless and tasteless, animals and, you know, including fish and birds, they don't know that they're consuming DDT. Now, interestingly enough, DDT is only moderately toxic to amphibians like frogs, toads, and salamanders. Um, immature amphibians are more sensitive uh, than the adult amphibians to DDT which I find interesting because they have very porous skin. So that would be that dermal effect. You would think it would be absorbed in a little bit more, um, but I guess that's not the case. DDT is only slightly to moderately acutely toxic to mammals, and that's including people if eaten. Uh, DDT is poorly absorbed through mammalian skin, but it is easily absorbed through an insect's outer covering known as the exoskeleton. So that's why it works so well getting through the exoskeleton, killing the insects by shutting down uh, their nervous system. So laboratory animals exposed to DDT developed hyperexcitability, tremors, incoordination, and convulsions. And so in lab animals given potentially fatal doses in one sitting of DDP, DDT developed liver lesions, and those given DDT over a long period of time, that same dosage over a long period of time, developed liver changes. Now, we see that it's toxic to 
amphibians, fish, aquatic animals, birds, mammals. Let's look at humans for a second. According to the CDC, no effects have been reported in adults given small daily doses of DDT by capsule for 18 months. And that's up to 35 milligrams every day. So first things first, 35 milligram is not a small daily dose, at least when it's compared to what we usually think of when we think of doses, which would be different prescription drugs or non-prescription drugs. And so just to kind of give that comparison, here are a few typical daily doses um, for common medications. So Valium, the most common dosage is 10 milligrams. Lipitor, 20 milligrams. Prozac, 20 milligrams. Prilosec, 20 milligrams. Propranolol, 120 milligrams. So 35 milligrams is a typical dosage for a drug. Not really a small dosage by any means. So people exposed to DDT while working with the chemical or by accidental exposure report prickling sensations of the mouth, nausea, dizziness, confusion, headache, lethargy, incoordination, vomiting, fatigue, and tremors. So, yeah, you're not downright dying. You know, there's not blindness or things like that. But it still does not sound fun to be exposed to DDT. That would still be miserable. And I would assume, because I, in these studies, I couldn't really tell how long some of these side effects lasted, if they lasted as long as the DDT exposure, or if they lasted longer. Um, that's somewhat inconclusive. Either way, I would not want to experience any of these, especially, you know, you're exposed to DDT, you don't necessarily know. You can't smell it, you can't taste it. Out of nowhere, you get all of these, or a majority of these. That would not be fun. Back to animals, we can look at the question of does DDT cause reproductive or birth effects? Now, we've kind of already talked a little bit about birds. It can cause eggshell thinning and embryo issues. Uh, that's obviously going to reduce the population in birds. Um, so in one study, dogs fed DDT in low doses were shown to not have reproductive effects. But conversely, rats become sterile after being fed DDT. And again, some of these studies, you know, were kind of all over the place. There wasn't any set standard in milligrams that they were fed. Um, it was left to interpretation, I suppose. So rats become sterile after being fed DDT. Mice fed low levels of DDT have embryos that fail to attach to the uterus and irregular reproductive cycles. And then the offspring of mice that were fed DDT have a higher mortality rate. So in rats, they become sterile. But in mice, they're basically miscarrying or having stillbirths or infant mortality right after birth, which I find kind of interesting because 
You know, rats and mice are pretty similar. Obviously, rats are larger. They're not exactly the same creature. But it's kind of interesting to see, you know, that vast difference in, you know, not that big of a difference in size. It's one of the breakdown products of DDT, which is DDE, that actually causes the eggshell thinning uh, for birds. So in terms of humans, scientists have no data indicating that DD causes reproductive problems or birth defects in humans. You know, I think it's been so long and there are so many other factors in the environment that can cause birth defects, it's probably hard to pinpoint whether or not it's DDT causing certain issues. And it comes down to exposure, you know, how much DDT is or was present, and the length and frequency of the exposure. And the effects also depend on the health of the person and or those certain environmental factors. Now, when it comes to cancer, the US EPA has strict guidelines that require testing of pesticides for their potential to cause cancer. This would be carcinogens. These studies involve feeding laboratory animals, you know, rats, mice, large daily doses of the pesticide over most of the lifetime of the animal. Now, these animals are compared with a group of animals that did not receive the chemical. This is the typical sort of study Animal studies help show whether a chemical is a potential human carcinogen, as I just stated. It's kind of interesting that we're still at a point in time where we're testing for human carcinogens on mice and rats. You know, I know they're mammals, they're sort of similar, but they're really not the same as humans, and the size is undoubtedly a major issue between comparing the two. So if a pesticide does not cause cancer in animal tests, then the EPA considers it unlikely the pesticide will cause cancer in humans. Again, I just find that completely crazy. And unfortunately, a lot of substances are tested that way. So in animals, according to these tests, and I said rats and mice, it hasn't just been rats and mice. Um, they've tested it on other living creatures as well. So mammals exposed to DDT develop liver tumors and, and have an increased risk of these liver tumors. In one study where female and male mice, again mice, consume doses of DDT for life, the males were twice as likely to develop liver tumors. Now in humans, there hasn't been a lot of tests, but... The EPA has categorized DDT as a B2 carcinogen. So this means that DDT has been shown to cause cancer in laboratory animals, but there is inadequate or no evidence which shows that it may cause cancer in humans. I think that's kind of crazy. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, you'd have to work out the ethics of it, but I think you would have to do testing on humans. I'm sure there are people that need money for their family or just don't care. I, I don't know. I, you know, I wouldn't, can't leave the ethics up to me. I have no idea, but surely there are humans out there that would be willing to be tested on like human lab rats 
and we could actually get these things figured out, but that's neither nor there. Um, so there was a group of workers studied for 19 years employed at a DDT manufacturing facility, um, and they didn't develop cancer. So the good thing is there are places that are still producing DDT. You can look at workers that work at these plants. Um, again, that's hard. It's not really a controlled environment compared to a lab setting, but hey, if that's the best you have without intentionally harming people, you know, that's probably the way to go. So studies have also shown that there is no correlation between an increased risk of breast cancer in women exposed to DDT. Now, while that is mainly true according to most studies, I will look at a study later on that kind of has some interesting information about that. Uh, we can check that out. Now, I said earlier there is bioaccumulation of DDT in the environment, in animals. So turns out that DDT, like a lot of heavy metals and other chemicals, tends to accumulate in fatty tissues of insects, wildlife, and people. But apparently it produces no known toxic effects while it's stored in that fat. So this, in my mind, is you could have DDT. A person could be exposed to DDT. It gets stored in their fat. If they stay fat all their life or that fat is never burned away, so you that person never goes on a diet to lose that weight, they're probably okay. But if they decide to lose that weight or for some reason their body decides to use that fat store, what is that doing? Well, I have that answer. And it appears that fat stores are used during periods of starvation. The breakdown products of DDT are released into the blood where they may be toxic to the liver and the nervous system. So they're saying it's not toxic when you are exposed to it. It's stored in your fat, but when it's released from the fat, it's broken down into other chemical byproducts, and then it could be harmful. So I think that you should still be able to say, hey, DDT is harmful to humans. It doesn't matter because if it's in your body, it's going to be broken down. Ultimately, it's broken down. I get why you can't say DDT directly is harmful, but if you know it goes into the body and it's broken down and those byproducts are harmful, that's kind of it. It's harmful. Um, unfortunately, there's still not a lot of tests or research that has shown how harmful these byproducts are. Although I will get into it a little bit later on. Now, once DDT has accumulated in the body, it is excreted in the urine. Like I said, it goes, it can cause liver issues. It's going to go to your liver. That's where it's going to stop. It's going to be taken out. Um, and you're going to excrete it through your urine, your feces, or breast milk. Now, this is very important. Breast milk is often used to measure a population's exposure to DDT. So they're going to measure the exposure and... Think of the people that are not being measured. They are passing DDT on to children with newer, weaker immune systems, liver, everything. You know, that could, that could be a problem. Biomagnification pertains to these fat stores like I was talking about in humans, but instead 
also animals. As uh, animals lower in the food chain are eaten by other animals higher up in that food chain, the DDT becomes concentrated in the fatty tissues of those predators. Now this continues until the primary predator of the food chain receives the highest dose, which may lead to those adverse health effects. Um, once the use of DDT was discontinued in the U.S., its concentration in the environment actually started to decrease. Now, it's going to take a while to get rid of high doses of DDT. In fact, DDT is highly persistent in the environment. The soil half-life of DDT is anywhere from 2 to 15 years. And because it's not water-soluble, um, it the half-life of DDT in aquatic environments is 150 years, and it can generally be found in sediment at the bottom of waterways. And just for any of you that don't know what half-life is, this is the time required for half of the compound to degrade. So one half-life equals 50% reduction, two half-lives equals 75% reduction, Three half-lives is 88, four, 94%, and five is 97% reduction. So you can see, if it takes 150 years in aquatic environments to just lose half of the DDT, it's going to take a long, long time to reduce it to essentially zero. It'll never be zero but it can be basically zero. So the physical amount of DDT remaining in the environment is obviously related to what was initially released into the environment. You can't have more than what was released. So in 1969, mackerel fish were recalled from Southern California because they were contaminated with high levels of DDT. And further research found that high levels of DDT were found in phytoplankton, which were then eaten by zooplankton, which is what the fish were eating. And there's where that biomagnification comes into play. And this DDT level was 10 parts per million, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it is quite a bit. And also in this same area, Sea lions, which are the ultimate predator, they would eat the fish, many fish, not just mackerel. They would eat the fish that are eating the zooplankton, that are eating the phytoplankton. And so these sea lions were giving premature births, and their levels were 1,000 parts per million. And furthermore, bottlenose dolphins in the same area were also having premature births, and their levels were to be found at 2,000 parts per million, which is a lot. So currently, DDT is banned in the majority of countries due to national negotiations to control persistent organic pollutants, or POPs, under the United Nations Environmental Program, in this program, many countries came together for what was known as the Stockholm Convention on POPs. Now, this convention does, however, give limited exceptions for the use of DDT, 
to control mosquitoes that transmit malaria. In September 2006, the World Health Organization declared that DDT's negative effects are greatly outweighed by the effects of malaria in African countries, which is why DDT is one of 12 pesticides recommended for the indoor residual spray programs um, of these organizations. Um, interestingly enough, the EPA and UNEP works with countries to advise and assure the implementation of responsible vector management for malaria control. So the EPA banned it first, then later on became kind of a policing agency of the use of it. Um, but they are doing pretty good work, um, making sure that it's not just being used uncontrollably. Now, in terms of production, since 2008, Hindustan Insecticide Limited facilities in India were the only registered sites for DDT production in the world. And they export DDT to countries in Asia Pacific and African regions. From 2003 to 2007, India, China, Korean DPR were the last remaining countries creating DDT, with India leading in production. Production had gone down from 18.5 metric tons per year in 2008 to 1 metric ton per year in 2020. And I believe it's gone down even further now, um, because as of 2022, which was just last year, the last producer of DDT committed to phase out production by 2024. Before I move on to the current research, I'd like to just kind of talk about a recent finding of dumped DDT barrels. So the LA Times in October of 2020 broke this broke this story about more than 40 barrels being found off the Santa Catalina Island in California. And it's important because there is a Superfund site not too far from where these barrels were found. And a Superfund site is a site that has been um, contaminated greatly and the EPA has set up to be cleaned up and rehabilitated. You can't do anything with it. It's heavily protected at this point. Um, and there are Superfund sites all over the United States. At some point, I'll do um, podcast episodes on a couple of the different sites or maybe even the Superfund site um, kind of program how that all works out. But anyways... There is a Superfund site not too far from this, but all of these barrels, essentially this DDT dumping ground, was found outside of that Superfund site. But it's been so long, they're thinking that these barrels were dumped in the 60s and 70s, that the damage essentially has already been done. So according to the article... The EPA has just decided to let the barrels lay, let the issue be, and not disturb that ecosystem any more than it already has been. 
Um, I'm assuming it would cost millions of dollars to extend that Superfund site. Once the Superfund site is set up, it's pretty hard to change boundaries and change stipulations within that Superfund site. But it, it, it should be noted that this dumping ground was found to have DDT concentrations 40 times higher than normal Superfund sites are limited for. You know, like I said, it's been so long that the EPA doesn't want to disturb the site. Um, they assume the damage has been done. Um, and it's fairly new, so who knows? There could be litigation that pops up at some point. Um, you still have organizations that are basically lobbying for certain um, regulations and things like that. So we'll see. It's a relatively new story, like I said, 2020, 2021, basically reaffirming that the EPA wasn't going to do anything about it. Um, but we'll see. You know, it took 20, 30, 40 years for things to happen with DDT the first time around. So there is hope that something could be done. But honestly, if it is seeped into the ocean, there, I mean, there really isn't a lot that you can do, you know. The barrels are so old, you try to move them, even if it's even if a barrel is not seeping DDT, it's still intact. Once you try to go and move that, you know you you could be in for a world of trouble trying to uh, dispose of that and uh, clean up that that area. So let's go ahead and hop into the current research being done or somewhat current research. Uh, so three, I have three recent studies pertaining to DDT exposure. Uh, the first one is called the Elevated Serum Pesticide Levels and Risk for Alzheimer's Disease. This one was kind of interesting. It was, well, they're all interesting, but this one I found especially interesting because basically the study says that while the causes of Alzheimer's disease, I'm gonna call it AD from now on, is likely to be caused by genetic, environmental, and lifestyle factors, uh, there is limited epidemiological evidence from this study that shows the DDT and its metabolites are associated with Alzheimer's disease, or AD. Now, the objective of this study was to evaluate the association between serum levels of DDE, again, that's a metabolite of DDT, and AD. So the study population consisted of 79 control samples, 86 AD samples, so people with Alzheimer's disease, and the average age of the participants was 85.7 years. I, I think it's funny, you know, average, obviously how you compute average, you're going to have a point something, but it's just funny hearing 85.7 years, you know, round it up, round it down, whatever. So the serum DDE levels determined by gas chromatography and mass spectrometry and expressed in terms of free cholesterol levels. So DDE was detected in 70% of the control group and 80% of the AD group, showing a 3.8-fold higher in serum amount of those with AD when compared to the control group. So already off the bat, the AD group has a higher amount serum DDE levels. 
So the highest tertile of DDE levels was associated with the odds ratio of 4.18 for increased risk of AD and lower mini mental state exams. No other organochlorine pesticides were found to be elevated in the AD samples compared to the control samples. So mini mental state exam scores, this is just a mental state exam they give to AD patients or when you're suspected to have AD or when you get to a certain age, it kind of expresses um, mental function. Uh, so many mental state exam scores were significantly lower in the highest DDE Turchow, which, you know, it's kind of hard to... I, I think having been around people with AD, they have good days and they have bad days. Sometimes they're worse, sometimes they're better. So, you know, I would hope they would do this very often. It didn't really say how often they did these exams, but it could be on an off day for one person that happened to have the highest DDE that they had the worst score. I I mean, I don't know. I, I would assume being researchers, they did do their due diligence. But um, like I said, I mean, it, it does come and go sometimes. I don't, you know, if you're out there and you've had any contact with someone with AD, um, you, you probably know that. So researchers ultimately sought to determine whether DDE or DDT have mechanistic association with AD. And recent studies reported altered network activity in expressed mice was associated with altered sodium channels. So they're looking at a group with AD, they're looking at a group, a control group with suspected not having AD, they're giving them many mental state exams, and they're looking at their serum levels. So ultimately, they wanted to determine whether DDE or DDT had mechanistic association with AD. So this is what the researchers had to say. Because sodium channels are the molecular target of DDT and APP overexpression is a causative factor in AD, we hypothesized that DDT or DDE, that metabolite, would increase APP levels. Researchers determined this by exposing cultured neural cells and measured the levels of APP exposure of these cells to DDE and DDT for 48 hours significantly increased APP levels by almost 50%. So another study called the long-term effects of DDT exposure in semen fertility, and sexual function of malaria vector control workers in Limpopo province, South Africa. And this was from 2021, very recent. This study was a cross-sectional study of 60 workers near the Malaria Control Center in Zanin, South Africa. And these tests conducted on these workers included questionnaires on sexual function, fertility, and job history, and then physical examination of the reproductive system and semen analysis. Sperm count density and motility were determined by using the 
who criteria and morphology using the strict Tigerberg criteria. And then serum isomers of DDT, DDE, and DDT, which is another DDT metabolite, were also measured. So once all this was done, only 81% of subjects produced a semen sample. And the mean sperm count of these 81% subjects was 93.8 million with a sperm density of 75 million per milliliter and a morphology score of 2.5%. Now, according to the study, 84% of morphology scores were below WHO or Tigerberg criteria and self-perceived sexual dysfunction was between 10 to 20%. The most prevalent genital abnormalities was testes deposition at 71%. So that means the dropping of testicles. One, you know, they obviously your testicles drop. Well, there were issues in 71% of these men. So ultimately, even though semen quality was low in relation to standard criteria, Parameters were not unusually low compared to only other studies in industrial areas. Therefore, no strong evidence for DDT effect was found in this one. So while there were some issues, it, they weren't strong enough. They weren't outliers to other research in similar industrial areas. Now, the last one is called Grand Maternal Perinatal Serum DDT in Relation to Granddaughter Early Monarchy and Adult Obesity, Three Generations in the Child Health and Development Studies Cohort. This study was a population-based, multi-generational cohort with ongoing follow-up for over 60 years. So this is a very long-term study. And it looked at, so it looked at three generations of women. First generation is noted as FO. They were exposed to DDT during pregnancy. The second generation, FI, is in vitro exposure. And the third, F2, is exposed in egg development. FO, remember that's the first group exposed to DDT, are in their 70s at the time of this study. F1 is in their 50s and F2 is in their 20s. So 60% of the F1 and F2 samples were ultimately used. The rest either died or they did not respond uh, to the researchers uh, for self-demographic testing, reporting, things like that. Now to begin with, the weight and height of the F2 were measured and used for BMI. Age at monarchy was assessed, which was self-reported. And for any of you that doesn't know what monarchy is, that's the beginning of the menstrual cycle for um, women, which would you know be in young girls. Um, and some socio-demographic information was also collected. BMI, which is body mass index, 
was classified as greater than 30 and less than 30 to represent obesity. Waist circumference was classified as greater than 80 centimeters versus less than centimeters. And age of monarchy was classified as younger than 11 and older than 11. FO, that initial group, had DDT, DDE, and lipid and lipid paternal serum samples collected during 1959 and 1967 within one to three days of giving birth. 86% of the draws were postpartum, so after birth. 12% were taken in the third trimester, and 2% were of samples were taken in the second trimester. And drying time was not shown to affect associations observed in F2 findings. So the last group that was studied. So F1 also had their BMI calculated and their sociodemographic data collected, the same as F the F2 group. Now to the results, results showed that grandmothers higher DDT levels was associated with an increase in daughter and granddaughter obesity by two to three fold and in early age younger than 11 years old monarchy was about two times more likely so according to other studies earlier monarchy and midlife obesity has been linked to an increase the potential for breast cancer development and thus midlife obesity and early monarchy linked to previous generations that were exposed to DDT can be associated with increased breast cancer risks. So basically what these researchers is saying is, hey, we have a group of women that were exposed to DDT while pregnant, and they gave birth to women that had higher BMI than the previous generation and earlier menstrual cycles. And then that group also then went on to have daughters that had a higher BMI than even that generation did and also had early periods. And then they're connecting their findings to other research that says, hey, if you have this higher obesity and younger age of menstrual cycles starting, then you're at a higher risk for breast cancer. So it's an interesting way to connect DDT with breast cancer. Now, again, it doesn't factor in for literally any other environmental factor that you could think of or health factor it kind of negates all of that but it is an interesting link that they're trying to make there ddt the wonder pesticide and true military hero ended up carelessly being pushed down the throats of the public until a book came along named silent spring which brought attention to the pesticides problem ultimately ddt was banned in the u.s and then the majority of the world, and this was due to its toxicity to not only insects, but also aquatic animals and mammals. Its persistence causes very long-lived effects. Malaria control is one of the last approved uses for DDT, 
and that will soon change as the last producer of DDT in India has pledged to stop production by 2024. Research is still ongoing, but is starting to connect intergenerational effects of DDT on not only humans, but also the environment.